you've got your Bibles, let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. So good to be in His presence, amen. Something about the presence of the Lord that just makes everything else fade. Doesn't necessarily, you know, when we worship the Lord, sometimes He takes care of our problems when we're not even paying attention. But sometimes they're there when we get out of church, waiting for us. But there's something about being in His presence that changes all of that. Amen. Um, just keep that opening text. We'll get to that in a moment. And uh, just let me begin to lay a little bit of a, a platform if I can. The Scriptures describe Jesus in Colossians chapter 1 as being the image of the invisible God. Uh, being that which can be seen of that which can't be seen, which sounds contradictory to us, but that's what the Word of the Lord says. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it even goes as far as to describe him as the express image of his person. So he's, he's not just an image, he is the image of the invisible God. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 takes it another step and attributes to him all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, or as one modern translation puts it, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And uh, this idea has throughout history been an area of much debate. And uh, it's, it's caused some varying doctrinal views that unfortunately sometimes depend on sources outside of the Word of God for, for support. And uh, I'm not teaching about the Godhead this morning in case you're strapping in for that kind of a lesson, although it's a subject I do enjoy. But I'm going to be starting a series of lessons that will in, probably include Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights for a little while, loosely based around this topic, things that we can measure and things that we cannot, things that we can measure and things that we cannot. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for the people that are here. We just pray, Lord, that as we open your word together, Lord, and begin this, this series today, that you would help us, Lord, in our understanding, that you would minister to us through this, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. The, the Old Testament describes God in terms of majesty and vastness and uses expressions like from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, the psalmist spoke of how it was impossible to flee somewhere that was far enough away that you could get away from God's presence. He basically said, it wouldn't matter where I go, how hard I try, I go here, I go there, I try this trick, I try that trick, you're there. I can't get away. He just said, you're everywhere at once. And the, the verse I've given you as a, as a beginning text this morning says, Isaiah 40 and verse 12 says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Now, I, the, the concept or the principle that this verse is communicating is not that God has a literal massive set of scales that he puts the mountains in because that'd be a pretty impressive scale. But the idea that's been communicated by the prophet here is that God is bigger than big, that he is immeasurable, that the things that we are impressed with the size of, he contains within himself, which makes it impossible for us to grasp 
how awesome, how vast and the majesty and the splendor of the God that it is that we serve. But then come the New Testament and Jesus comes along and he's spoken of in the same way as the Old Testament spoke about God. There's a reason for that because the scripture says in 1 Timothy 3.16 that God was manifest or revealed or demonstrated in the flesh. But the difference between what they thought about God in the Old Testament and what they saw in Jesus Christ was that he is measurable. They could measure his height. Bible doesn't tell us how tall he was, whether he was six foot or 5'10", or if you want metric, whether he was 165 centimeters or however, it doesn't tell us, but we know that he was a man. And so his height was measurable. His weight was measurable. You know, we don't know what kind of body structure he had. Was he slim? Was he stocky? You know, but all those things are measurable. They can measure the size of his shoes. They can measure the size of his clothes. And so there were many things about Jesus Christ, about God manifesting the flesh, that unlike the God they were used to talking about in the Old Testament, were measurable. And so the challenge becomes, how do we understand this measurable man who is the express image of the immeasurable God? We talk about God in terms that have no limits, and yet we have this man that the Bible declares has all the fullness of the Godhead in him, limited to that, that size, that frame that he was. And one of the first things that happens to us in our lives when we're born is that we get measured. Baby gets born, once they're pretty sure the baby's okay, they measure how long the baby is. They put that thing on a scale, or they measure how heavy the baby is. You know, when you ask, if you ask a lady about somebody's baby, they can tell you how long it is, how much it weighed. If you ask a man, he just says, yeah, it's a boy. Or it's a girl. That's one of the differences between men and women. Men just go, yep, baby's good, baby was a boy. Ladies can tell you it had some hair, didn't have some hair, already looks like granddad, whatever the case may be. But we get measured, and as you progress throughout life, everything is measured. That baby goes back for more checkups. How's its growth? How's its development? What's its weight, its length? There are different markers they're looking for that they consider within normal parameters of growth and development. And then when they stop doing that, when you stop taking your infants back to the, the, the nurse every once in a while, before long that kid starts going to school and everybody that's been to school knows that all they do at school is measure you. You're always doing tests. You're always having to learn things and they're measuring to see whether you've got that sorted or you haven't. And if you were like me, it was more haven't than had. But you get measured as you go throughout school and 10, 12 years, and some people go on to higher education, and your progress is constantly being measured. Mankind measures everything. And when they do, once they've measured it, then they decide they want to make it better. Let's make it bigger. Let's make it faster. Let's, you know, if you, you can Google things and say, what's the tallest building in the world? And and you'll get the results. If you Google what's the smallest building in the world, it might be a little bit harder to find out because it's all about bigger, better, faster, stronger, more efficient. That's the way that mankind is. They want to make it better than the previous model. You imagine if you were going in to buy a new car and you had, uh, had an old car that you were trading in and you said to the salesman, what are the features of this new car? Because it's a newer model. And the salesman said, well, we've taken out the air conditioning. 
Oh, okay. We've taken out the stereo. That's gone. And the suspension's been removed as well. And we decided that, you know, you didn't really need seatbelts. And that anti-brake lock system, yeah, we got rid of that. You'd be like, this is backwards, not forwards. When you look for a new car, you're hoping for better things. Because they've measured and they've tried to improve. And see, this, this is one of the reasons why understanding creation is such a problem for the measuring minds of men. Because they are taking their little measuring tapes and their devices and their tests and they're stepping into the arena of him that cannot be measured. They're stepping into an area of a God that cannot be quantified and trying to use their limited understanding to measure God, which is why they make such a mess of understanding creation. It's a little bit like taking a tablespoon and heading down to the beach and starting to measure the ocean. And then after maybe a whole day of doing that, you might have a bucket and a half of tablespoons. And then declaring, because I've measured this bucket and a half of tablespoons, I'm now qualified to declare how big the ocean is. It's what man's trying to do with creation. They, God is so immeasurable, and they're trying to say, well, if I can fit him into my little box, I can declare what happened. And we know how well that's worked throughout history. And everything that gets proven, a little while gets proven to be wrong, and they start again. And that's just how it is. But we measure things all the time. People measure each other. That's how, if we're honest in human nature, we decide who the good people are and who the bad people are. We measure each other. The primary purpose for people measuring each other is self-justification. As long as I'm better, in my opinion, than another person, then that therefore makes me a good person. As long as I can say, well, I don't belong in this social circle or I haven't done, committed this list of sins, then I must therefore be a good person. But then what happens to us is if we find ourselves in one of those circles or settings that previously we would have looked down upon, we then adjust our measuring system and justify what took us there and use new measurements and say, well, no, this has happened because now I understand that. And we change the, the rules as we go along. The underlying principle is still all about us feeling good about ourselves. But the scripture lets us know in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So wherever you happen to perceive yourself on that imaginary ladder of goodness and badness, it doesn't register with God. I was talking to somebody just recently and it's a little bit like, you know, if you're a meter under the water or you're 100 meters under the water, you're still drowning. The depth is irrelevant if you're drowning. Now, if you're drowning, it's like, well, I don't feel as bad as the guy that's drowning all the way down there. You're drowning. And that's kind of what sin is like. If we've got sin in our lives, we're drowning. You might be better than that murderer you read about in the newspaper or that drug dealer or that whatever horrible crime that you can think of. You may think you're better than that person, but if you're underwater, you're underwater. And so it's really, you know, it's like, well, I'm, I'm glad I didn't drown at 100 meters. I only drowned at a meter. But that's human thinking. That's the way that our minds work. And it's, it's crazy, but it's what we do. Because the depth that I can measure is irrelevant. If I'm under, I'm under. Have you ever heard anybody say, don't judge me? One of the catchphrases of the modern world, don't judge me. You can't judge me. 
you know. People who say that are often using that expression as a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you can't judge me, therefore you're not allowed to have an opinion about what I'm doing or who I am. And, you know, they're usually, not always, but they're usually doing what's not right. And by saying, don't judge me, they're putting up this protective shield against other people's opinions. The Bible does tell us not to judge others and how we ought to be careful because we'll be judged with the same measurement that we use on others. Matthew 7, 1 to 2 says, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. A bit of a tongue twister. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. You see, the idea behind the word judge in these verses is that we should not make ourselves judge and jury over other people. We shouldn't condemn people or pronounce judgment on their lives. We shouldn't be harsh and write people off. But at the same time, in the same chapter, and this is where people get this backwards, in the same chapter of Matthew chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, it says, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth, forth, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down or chopped down, cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Now, how do I know someone's fruit if I'm not making some kind of a judgment? How do you examine the fruit of a tree and, and, and declare good fruit or bad fruit if you're not assessing that fruit? This is where we need to understand the difference between the two. There's a difference between judging to condemn somebody and judging or assessing a situation or a particular conduct. It's not about trying to put someone in hell or make somebody feel less than you are or make yourself feel better than someone else. But it's about, hey, by your fruit, the Bible says, you'll know them. So you go up to somebody's tree, figuratively speaking, and, and they say, don't judge me. But that's not exactly what the word of the Lord is trying to communicate to us. You imagine if you went for a job interview. Most of us, at least of a certain age, have been for a job interview. You sit down across the table from the person that you're meeting with and, and they say, okay, so you, you've applied for this job and what qualifications do you have? Don't judge me. Do you have any experience? Don't judge me. What kind of money would you like? Don't judge me. Are you going to get that job? Probably not. Probably not. Or if... If somebody walked into service, let's say tonight, and came up to me, I've never seen them before in my life, and said, I want to be the youth leader of your church. That's happened. If somebody did that, and I'm going to say, well, you know, okay, that's, that's great. Where have you been going to church? Don't judge me. Have you been born again? Don't judge me. There's a difference between judging and examining fruit. Those of you that are fathers that have daughters, you imagine this one using this analogy because men are more protective of their daughters. Imagine if a, your daughter brought a young man home who she's in love with, head over heels. You sit down with this young man, you're already a bit prickly because he's on your turf and that's your little girl. And you say, so, have you got a job? No. Okay, are you studying? No, not studying. You got somewhere to live? No, sleeping in my car. What plans do you have? I don't have any plans. So how are you going to take care of my daughter? Don't judge me. It's going to be a short night. It's going to be the last time I ever see that young man. Bless the Lord. So there is a difference between judging to condemn and examining fruit. God has, doesn't have a problem with measurement. 
He doesn't have a problem with measurement. In fact, let's look at some scriptures together so I know you're still with me. Let's go to John chapter 5 and then to 2 Timothy. And we'll look at a couple of verses here. There is a perspective in what is loosely called Christendom that we shouldn't have opinions, that, that God is love and that everything is about grace and that, you know, your view doesn't have to be the same as my view and my view doesn't have to be the same as their view and we should all just be one big happy family and nobody should have a strong opinion that contradicts another person's opinion and it's all nice and it's fluffy, but it's just not reality. It's not reality because we all have opinions. And, but opinions, when it comes to being Christians, must come out of the Word of God. See, the Lord, if you read the Scripture, God is a God of measurement. In John 5 and 39, He said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He was speaking to people that had knowledge of the Scripture. But he was questioning how they were measuring. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, some of us, when we were kids, our parents gave us a ruler with this verse on the back of it. It didn't make any difference to education. But it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That means that when I study the Scripture, I need to be able to understand what it says about what and who and where and why in my life. I need to be able to open this book and know what it's saying and take my direction from it. It's described as being a lamp and a light, which is useless if there's no path to shine on. And so the Lord has no problem with measurement. 2 Timothy 3 and 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And many of you know that that word inspiration is translated from a Greek word which literally means that God breathed. It is God expressing Himself. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, or it's for our benefit. What for? For doctrine, teaching, strong teaching, for reproof. That's the old-fashioned word for saying you're going the wrong way, pull your head in and get in line. And for correction, basically the same thing. And for instruction in righteousness. That doesn't sound like God is love, do what we want, we're all going to heaven. That sounds like the Lord said there is instruction, there is direction, there is correction. Jesus said the gate is narrow. The way is straight. I've probably got those two round the wrong way. But what he was saying was, it's not just however you like. He said, there's a way you've got to strive to enter in. Now, that doesn't mean that we've got to earn our way in. It means we've got to come in the right way. There is a difference between the two. But God is all about measurements. You look and study the Old Testament for any period of time, you will see that when it came to the law and to the tabernacle. And to the priesthood, God was almost, it's as if he was obsessed with details. You read it all, you think, does it really matter? Does it really matter if this fence post is an inch longer than the next fence post? Does it really matter? Does it really matter if it's made out of brass or gold? Does it really matter? But God said that it did. And he gave them instructions 
and measurements and detail upon detail. Nowadays, we would say he was OCD. He gave them strict measurements. The priests had to do everything a certain way. They had to present themselves a certain way. They had to offer a sacrifice a certain way. They couldn't look around for the most convenient animal. There was instruction after instruction after instruction. So anybody that thinks that God is not interested in measurement and doing things right is not reading the same Bible that I'm reading. Amen. When Solomon built the temple, it got to a point he invested so much wealth into that thing that it got to a point where some of the materials they used, they used so much of it, they literally lost count. They basically said, we gave up counting. We ran out of fingers and toes. We couldn't count all the stuff that was used. And there was no expense spared on its, its majesty and its splendor. And by man's measurements, the temple was like nothing that had ever been seen before. It was incredible. It was impressive. And when he dedicated that temple, when he dedicated that temple to being a house of worship to God, the scripture says, again, they offered more sacrifice than they could count. They were just doing everything they could to try to, to, to bring their very best. And God honored that. But in the midst of all of what they could give and measure, in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 10, it says, And it came to pass that when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the, because of the cloud for the glory of of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. They had given everything they had so much that they couldn't count it. But when the immeasurable one showed up, when God, who is vast and majestic and from everlasting to everlasting, showed up, everything they could do ceased. They couldn't even begin to minister because they could no longer sing. If you read it in the, the account, I think it's in Chronicles, it talks about there being musicians. All of that just was put on hold because when God showed up, he said I, he responded to what they were doing, but he reminded them I'm bigger than all of this. What I am is far more powerful and more majestic than all of this because God was in his house. And if you look at scripture, you'll see that sin is very measurable. Sin is measurable. You read the word of God, it lets us know very clearly what sin is. It lets us know what the consequences of sin are. It tells us that God shines his light in our hearts, and what that does is it reveals our sins. You can, if you, you know, I don't know we're all capable because we don't all remember all the things that we've done, and some of the things we've done we're not even aware of. But you can count lies. You can count stealing. You can count sin is able to be measured. And God knows every sin that's ever taken place. And the scripture speaks in a variety of places about us being measured, being weighed, being examined. The scripture teaches us about there's a, almost like a tension that exists between the condition of our hearts and the outward actions that we demonstrate and how God measures both together in that tension, in that balance. And we may get into some of that on Wednesday night. But I want you to turn with me to the 103rd Psalm, if you would.
I don't like to say this is a favorite passage of Scripture because I think it's, it's all good stuff. But this passage of Scripture always has an impact on me when I read it. So in the midst of everything that God measures, in verse 8 of the 103rd Psalm, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. Remember, he knows every single one of them. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west. Anybody tell me how far that is? You go east and keep going till you hit west? Probably run out of fuel first. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he knows what we're made of. He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness under children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. So in the midst of this, this book, the anointed word of God, that is full of measurements, it's full of instructions of how we are to live, there are things that God refuses to allow us to measure. There are things that he will not permit mankind to measure. Matthew 18 tells us that Peter came to the Lord, said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Peter wanted a measurement. Do you know why he wanted a measurement? Because when it got to eight, it was on. He thought seven was a pretty good deal. Some could argue it's the number of completion. But he, he wanted that measurement so that when it got past that, when it crossed that line, all bets were off and he could do what he wanted to do. But the Lord said to him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. It's not, again, it's not about the figure, but it's about going beyond Forgiveness is something that the Scripture does not permit us to measure. The forgiveness of God towards us, as long as we seek it from Him, we are not given any chapter or verse that says, there's only so many times that you can repent, or there's only so many times that God will welcome you back. That, there is no measurement for that in the Word of God. In, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, it says, Moreover, the law entered... And that the offense might abound. In other words, under the law, we were given measurements. They told us what our sins were and what we'd done. But then it says, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Again, no measurement. No measurement of His grace. It's always going to be enough. It's not, well, I, have, I don't know how you measure grace or what units you use to measure grace, but he didn't give us a limit because he doesn't want us to think that we can run out of it. His grace 
has no measure. There are things that we would like to measure. Let's be honest this morning. There's people in situations where we think they've spent too much grace. But oh, when it's our turn and we're in debt, when I need his grace, I'm hoping that it hasn't run out. I'm hoping that there's still more in the vessel for me. Amen. The grace of God cannot be measured. Ephesians enforces this idea when it says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Again, the exceeding riches of God's grace. Psalm 100 and verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And His truth endureth to all generations. There are things that God deliberately does not want us to try and measure. That's the trap that the Pharisees fell into. They measured people. Said that person's a sinner. I'm righteous. And they may have been able to look at their deeds and their assessment may have been accurate, but God's grace was still greater than their measurement. God's mercy was still extended regardless of weights and measures and scales and balances. God said, you can't measure this thing. I'll extend it as far as I want to extend it. I'll pour it out as much as I want to pour it out. I'm going to keep giving it even when you don't think it makes sense. We get to the New Testament and In 1 John 4 and 4, some of you could quote this verse. It says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Again, it doesn't say how great. It just says greater. So no matter how bad it is in the world, he's greater than that. No matter how bad things get, he's still greater than that. You know why God won't let us measure those things? Because mankind is stupid enough that if God said, I have this much grace, mankind would go off the end to see what happened. The Lord said, I'll give you so much mercy, we'd go and see what it was like on the other side of that line. Unfortunately, humanity has proved that time and time again throughout history, but you cannot, for all the things that he has given us to measure, and he wants us to measure things. Believe me, we'll get into some of that in the weeks to come. But for all the things that we can measure, I cannot measure his love. I can't measure his grace. I can't measure his mercy. And I can't measure his power. All I can say is that any situation, any circumstance, there's enough. There's enough. He is the all-sufficient one. I want you to turn with me to Luke 15 as I'm bringing this to a close this morning. I haven't been too long. I'll make up for that in another service, I'm sure. Talking about the things we can measure, the things that we can't. Luke 15 holds possibly one of the most well-known stories in the Word of God. It starts at about verse 11. It talks to us about a man that had two sons. And the younger of them said unto his father, Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after that, the young son took his newly fat wallet, headed out of town. I don't know if he took one of his dad's horses or hitched a ride on a camel. Who knows what he did. 
But he headed out of town and he, he lived the dream, lived the party, spent all his money, had a great time, riotous living, the King James calls it. You can imagine what that is in more modern language. But he, he got to a point where his money ran out and as chance might have it, I'm not a big believer in chance, but a famine occurred about the same time that his inheritance ran out. He found himself feeding pigs and at such a low point that he would have considered even eating the pig's food. And I don't even want to imagine what pigs ate 2,000 years ago. But when he came to himself in verse 17, he asked himself the question, he said, even my dad's servants back at the house are in so much better shape than I am. They, they, they may not have everything that dad has, but they've got clean clothes. They've got shoes on their feet. They've got meals. They've got security. They've got a roof over their head. And, and in his recognition of how far that he'd sunk, he decides to head back home and, and, and say, Dad, he's got this pre-planned speech. You know, he's going over in his head while he's walking down the road. No, I won't say it like that. That'll sound, no, no, I'll change that. And he's practicing this, this monologue for when he gets back to the father's house. And he gets to his father's house and, and he, he delivers his monologue and he says, Dad, you know, I've sinned, I've let you down, I've wasted all this and that and, I'm, you know, I don't expect you to welcome me back. I'm not good enough to be your son. Just make me a servant, if you would, because he's not owed anything. The father didn't really owe him anything. But he said, just make me a servant. But it was almost as if the father didn't even hear this pre-prepared monologue, blah, 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 blah. The father's heart, was not measuring at that point. You see, the father knew all the details. He knew his son had gone. He, had a, he may not have known all the sordid details of the life that he'd lived, but he had a bit of an idea. His father wasn't a fool. And if it was any society like ours, people were coming by saying, hey, I saw your son down such and such, and oh, good, you know. And the feedback came back. But see, the father knew all the details. But the father wasn't about measuring at that point. The father reached for the things that can't be measured. And he wrapped his son in his arms and he, he took him back into the house and, and cleaned him up, gave him a shave and a haircut and a new suit and a new pair of shoes and, and put on a feast for him. Because there were things in the story that Jesus was trying to communicate, again, that cannot be measured. You know, when, when somebody walks away from God, you have a couple of choices of how you handle them. You can hit them with the list and all the measurements, or you can extend to them those things that cannot be measured. Because we know the story goes on to include the, the, the role of the older brother, the goody two-shoes, the brother that had never done anything wrong, that always did what he was told, that worked hard. And this brother had the list. He had multiple copies in case he lost one. He knew what his little brother was and what he'd done, and he recorded every detail. And he was angry. And he was furious because he wasn't given all this, these, the party and the feast and all the rest of it. And in his mind, his brother deserved what he had coming and more. You see, the reality is the younger brother had the list. The father had the list. And the older brother had the list. All of them knew the details. They all knew the story. But what did they do with it? The younger brother owned his list. He knew that he was measured and found wanting. He didn't try to pretend. 
He told his dad, Dad, I've really messed it up. The father knew it as well. It's amazing how often parents know things that the kids think they haven't got a clue about. But the father knew it as well. And the older brother, yeah, he was, he was there with the, with the axe ready to cut his little brother's head off. But in the middle of that, that trio is the one that represents the love and the mercy and the grace of God. Because all of us have been the little brother. All of us. Whether you were a meter underwater or a hundred meters underwater. There was a point where we came to the Father's house and acknowledged our sin. That's what repentance is. We said, God, I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've broken all the rules. I've made a filthy mess. And he's welcomed us. He's opened his arms to us and welcomed us back. Where we've got to be careful, we've all been the younger brother. We've got to be very careful that we don't step into the shoes of the older brother. Because that's not... The lists belong to God. But his mercy and his grace and his love are ours to minister if we will. The Bible tells us that to us is given the ministry of reconciliation. It means we are to be involved in restoring. It's not, about, it's not the, mech, the, the ministry of debt collection. You, know, you send the boys around, well, I'll fix them up. It's the ministry of reconciliation. And I know this is maybe an unusual place to stop, but I want us to stand this morning. We're going to go into this more in weeks to come. But, and we'll get down to some measurements, trust me, just in case you think I'm going all loose and loopy. We'll get down to some measurements. But God wants us to recognize that the things that make a difference are not our lists and our rules and our measurements. They're the immeasurable things, the grace, the mercy, and the love. And I'm glad that when I go, I've had to learn, it's taken me a long time, but I've had to learn that when I mess up, there's still enough there. There's still more. There's still more. Let's just lift our hands and worship the Lord for just a moment.